We're in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. I'm going to read that. I'm reading from the ESV. Feel free to stand with me if you're willing and you're able as we read verses 12 through 19 from 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You may be seated. Our Father and God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, use your word, and make it active in our hearts and minds, uh, animate us with it, Lord, cause us to come to life, even as you've given us life, um, may we live more abundantly because you speak to us and we hear, and in order for that to happen, we need your spirit to open our eyes, our hearts, our minds, our ears, to know you. May your son be praised in us, among us, through us this morning. Because your word is good. And you are good. Amen. I've noticed that in my parenting, I use a lot of catch-all phrases. There's a reason for that. Sometimes with your instruction, your commands, uh, specificity does not help. Sometimes it helps to be more general. For example... If I say, don't poke your sister, that leaves a whole range of possibilities unaddressed. There are all sorts of things that you can do that aren't poking your sister. So sometimes being specific is not helpful. Sometimes it's better to use a catch-all phrase, be kind to your sister. That's better. That covers all sorts of actions that you don't want, right? Just be kind. Scripture gives a lot of catch-all instructions. Elders are called to be above reproach. As you look through the qualifications for eldership, there's a lot of them. There's specific that says just be above reproach, which is basically saying, like, don't, don't do anything that would disqualify you. It's kind of a catch-all general instruction. Another catch-all instruction is famously found in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is a nonspecific Catch all command. Whatever you do, 
Do it to the glory of God. That's kind of a rule to live by. Whatever you're doing, whether you're eating, whether you're drinking, whether at work, whether you're at school, in your relationships, in your family life, with your money, with your entertainment, with your leisure, in sickness and health, in richer or poorer, whatever place you find yourself in, bring honor and praise to God. Glorify Him. There are no exceptions to that instruction. We are to bring praise and honor to God in all that we do. And this includes even our suffering. In your suffering, in your trials and hardships, glorify God. That's what 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19 is all about. In your hardship, your sufferings, in persecution, in whatever hardship you may face in this life, how can you bring glory to God in the midst of it? How do Christians behave and glorify God in suffering? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. It'll be our main question. Put it this way. How do we suffer as Christians? How do we suffer as Christians? Not just suffering generally, but to suffer in a way that honors Christ, that brings glory to God. How do we suffer well? That's what Peter wants to address this morning. And I should know, Peter has a specific kind of suffering in mind. As he writes this to his readers, to the church scattered, he is specifically talking about persecution for the name of Christ, for being a follower of Jesus Christ. He has that kind of suffering in mind. At the time of Peter's writing, there hadn't yet been empire-wide, in the Roman Empire, empire-wide official persecution against Christianity. There wasn't, uh, Christianity wasn't illegal empire-wide quite yet, but there were pockets of persecution, especially in Rome and other places where, where Christians were persecuted for following Jesus by both Gentiles and Jews, right? Peter had already experienced this persecution from Jewish leaders. He had seen this with fellow believers like James and Stephen who had already died for the faith. So some of Peter's readers or hearers had already experienced persecution for being a Christian. Others probably would eventually. So Peter writes to prepare them, to teach them how to go through that suffering and specifically persecution well. How do you do that? We may need that instruction as well. At this point, we don't face a lot of overt persecution for our faith. That day may come. I think we're all aware that the cultural disposition towards Christianity is changing. I think I've said this before, but I know of a, a pastor in Portland where I lived prior to here, and he said, as a homeschool kid growing up in Portland, as a homeschool Christian specifically, he said, people would call me weird. Now, as a Christian pastor, people think I'm evil. In our culture, I used to be weird. Now I'm the enemy. Culture has changed. 
The culture shifting around us. We may or may not face overt, uh, real challenging persecution. We're going to face all sorts of opposition in subtle ways and not so subtle ways. So as we face that, how do we respond? How do we live in a Christian way? Beyond that, we need to learn how to suffer well in general. So Peter is specifically talking about persecution, but I think what he has to say applies to all kinds of suffering, not just persecution, but all kinds of suffering and hardships we're going to experience in life, whether they be uh, medical trials and challenges, relational trials and challenges, death itself that we're all going to face and experience in ourselves and in loved ones. We are going to face suffering in this life. So how do we do it well as Christians? That's what Peter addresses. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. I want to give you three uh, rules for suffering well. How do we suffer as Christians? We suffer well as Christians by doing three things. Rejoice in the Spirit, stand in Christ, and trust in God. That summarizes what Peter says here in these verses. I'll give you a Trinitarian approach to suffering. Rejoice in the Spirit, stand in Christ, trust in God. First look at verses 12 through 14. Here, Peter commands his readers, his hearers, to rejoice in the Spirit. When you face suffering, don't be surprised, but rejoice. Look again at verses 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Notice how Peter describes these sufferings in verse 12. At the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you, tells us a couple things. One, the trial, the fiery trial, is not pleasant. When you read fiery, you should think pain. So you are going to experience pain. There's going to be fiery trial. None of us likes to go through fire, right? We avoid that, generally speaking. But don't be surprised at it. This fiery trial, and notice what he says, when it comes to test you, which means it's intentional. It's not accidental. It's not something that just happened by chance and God wasn't aware of it. But there's actually a purpose behind the trial that is there for a reason to test you. The, the fire is there as a test. The trial is there as a test for you. I don't know why, but I was reminded of scratch-off labels. You know, on the back of a credit card, you have that film, you scratch it off. Or kids' crafts have some of that. Or scratch tickets for you degenerate gamblers, they're, you know, scratch it off. You apply pressure and scrape, and because of the scraping, what is underneath is revealed. That is what trials do. They apply pressure, they scrape against you, and in that trial they reveal, they test what is there. It's a revealing. That is what the fire trials do. And heaven is watching as you are tested. So how do we pass the test? of the fiery trials. First Peter says, don't be surprised. 
If you want to pass the test well of trials, don't be surprised, don't be shocked. These trials are not accidents. They're there for a reason. Speaking candidly, I don't know if anybody is morbid like I am. I, this might be neuroses or something, but I generally live with kind of a baseline expectation that things are going to go wrong. Which fights, because I think on one hand I'm an optimist and idealist, and I want to make things perfect, but my general baseline expectation is at some point the other shoe is going to drop. So, when I go through trials, I think, here it comes. I'm, I'm honestly not sure how to process that. Part of me thinks that's probably just a good healthy fear, an acknowledgement that we live in an imperfect world. And we are not promised much. Maybe it's just because I read church history. And great, great people have experienced the worst kinds of suffering. And if God has seen fit for them to suffer, why would I be any different? Why would I be exempt? Whatever it is, I just kind of live with that general baseline expectation that at some point I'm going to face more suffering. So as I go through suffering, and I haven't gone through much, God's been kind. But as we go through that, we might experience pain, anguish, tears, heartache. But as Christians, we should never be surprised. Shouldn't be shocked by suffering. It's promised to us. This is what the health and wealth gospel and health and wealth teachers get wrong. The teaching that, oh, if you come to Christ, all your problems will be fixed. And you'll have a wonderful, easy life. God wants only to bless you. Well, God does want to bless you, but it doesn't always look easy. And eventually, yes, come to Christ and you will live a perfect, wonderful, glorious life. It's just that death comes first. Glory is on the other side of the cross. We follow Jesus who suffered. So we anticipate suffering. This should influence, I think, the way we talk about the Christian life, the way even we preach the gospel. So we want to be careful not to preach the gospel of come to Jesus and your life will just be better. That, that's true. It will be better. But we want to be a little bit more qualified than that. Because sometimes it's come to Jesus and you're going to have to carry a cross. Come to Jesus, and there's going to be suffering along the way. Jesus himself was not afraid to give the warning and the caution as he proclaimed the gospel. There will be a cost to following him. But in the end, the other side of it is rejoicing and gladness, and that's what Peter gets to. Here's the second way we approach suffering. First, don't be shocked, but we rejoice and we are glad. Why? Because in suffering, we find that if we suffer in Christ, we are united to him. So this is why and how Peter can say, rejoice in suffering. 
You know, how can you say rejoice in suffering? How do you rejoice in suffering? How can you be happy when you're suffering? How is that even possible? I don't think Peter's saying that we don't cry tears. He's not saying that we don't have hurt or pain or we don't feel anything. Peter isn't saying enjoy suffering. What he's saying is this is a call to worship in the midst of the tears. It's a call to praise in the, through suffering, in the midst of suffering. A call to worship through pain. Because when we suffer as Christians for the name and cause of Christ, we can be affirmed that we are united to Christ in it. What does Peter say? Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When you suffer as a Christian in Christ, you're united to him. You have union with Christ who suffered. And you can rejoice because you will have union with him forever. Suffering in Christ proves you are one of his people. Peter knows what it's like to rejoice through suffering, persecution. Go back to Acts 5. Peter and some of the other apostles preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. Leaders in the city not happy with it. What do they do? Arrest them. Beat them. Charge them not to proclaim the gospel. In Acts 5, 41, how do the apostles respond? After the persecution, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. In their persecution, it was revealed, in that test, it was revealed they belong to Jesus Christ and they're worthy to suffer with him. Praise the Lord. And if they'll suffer now with Christ and rejoice now in the midst of suffering, and they will rejoice and be glad when Christ returns and are with him. They were able to look forward. That's what Peter calls us to do. Look forward to heaven in your suffering. I'm reminded of the Beatitudes. I'm positive Peter had these words of Jesus in his mind from Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. How do you rejoice in suffering? Well, you look to heaven. And lastly, know that you are not abandoned by God, but what are we given in our suffering, in persecution, in trouble? We are in Christ. We are given what Peter calls the spirit of glory and power. Peter's saying is, you have the Holy Spirit, so rejoice. Why we re rejoice in the fact that we have the Holy Spirit? It means you're not abandoned by God. You have something of heaven with you in your suffering. I'm sure you all know, suffering, trials of any kind, can be really lonely. They can be isolating at times because others aren't feeling the same way you are. And often we do this dumb thing where we don't want to make others sad around us. So we kind of stand off from them. We're not sure how to interact. And people will say weird things. And sufferings can be awkward. They can be isolating and lonely. Just in one sense, you have people with you. But ultimately, you have to go through it. And that's only something you can do in your own heart and mind. 
And what Peter says here is, you're not alone. You're not abandoned by God. You're not isolated. You're not forgotten. You are loved. And you have, as a Christian, the Spirit of God himself with you. And all his power and glory. How do you rejoice? Not by your own strength. By the power of God. The Spirit who is with you. How do Christians face suffering? Not surprised, not shocked. We worship in the pain because we are united to Christ and we'll see him again. And until then, we have his spirit. We suffer as Christians by first rejoicing the spirit and second, verses 15 through 16, Peter calls us to stand in Christ. We don't suffer because of our sin, but rather, when persecution or suffering comes, we stand for and in Christ. We stand in Christ. Look at verse 15. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So first Peter calls us to ensure that when we suffer, we're, we're suffering for the right reasons. Not as murderers or thieves, which were crimes punishable by death at that time. We don't want to suffer for those things. We don't want to suffer because we're facing the consequences of our own sinful actions. And then he uses kind of a catch-all phrase, I think. Don't suffer as an evildoer. Just generally, don't do evil. And Peter's not talking about suffering for your evil doing. Then he lists something weird. I don't know if you noted this when you read it. The last one almost doesn't seem to fit. Serious sins. Don't do these. Murder. Theft, which I think includes anger and greed and envy. Evil doing generally. And then Peter just throws out, don't suffer as a meddler. It's a weird one. It's actually a weird word. It's one of those words that's only found here in the New Testament, and from what I could find or research, it's not really found elsewhere in Greek either. It's just kind of one of those unique words. What it literally means is, to, is someone who watches over another's affairs. A meddler. And Peter's saying, don't do this. Don't get in other people's business when you're not supposed to. Because you'll face backlash for that, and that's not the kind of suffering he's talking about. It's an interesting thing. So, uh, I was reminded of this, I was thinking about this the other day. A couple of our kids were at school. Our four-year-old daughter was at home, and she wanted to play outside. So we let her go play outside, and she was swinging. And we like to sing hymns at our house, and one of the favorite hymns right now, this is for you parents, Up from the Grave He Arose. Might be Christmas time. Easter at our house with that. They like that song because it's loud. Up from the grave he arose. And you can just sing it louder and louder. He arose, he arose. Our four-year-old daughter was doing that in the backyard. And not just singing, but just started screaming, like loudly. Up from the grave he arose. So the whole neighborhood could hear. And when she came back in, we asked her about it. 
having fun singing? Yeah, yeah, why were you singing so loud? She said something that kind of surprised me. She said, I was singing loudly so our neighbors could hear and believe in Jesus. That's the perfect response. Oh, so cute. Now, here's the point. If I did that, went in our backyard and started screaming hymns so the neighbors could hear, that would not be a wise evangelistic tactic. Why? That is meddling. Shouting the gospel in people's faces when it's not wanted or invited. I think that's the kind of thing Peter's talking about. So one commentator used the example of sharing the gospel with somebody at work and then keeping them late over lunch break because you won't let them go and you keep talking and now they're in trouble with their boss. That's not helpful. The kind of meddling that just is obnoxious and pushes yourself on people and imposes your will and forces yourself upon them when it's not welcome or warranted That is not the kind of stand for Christ that Peter has in mind. We want to be bold with the gospel. We don't want to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. But Peter also says, but don't be a meddler. I think it's a fascinating thing to say, well, how do we know the difference? I think it just takes wisdom and grace and tact. We want to be tactful bold proclaimers, and we do need the courage to stand for the name of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter's calling us to do, to to stand as Christians. This is one of the few places in the New Testament where that word Christian is actually used. It means follower of Christ. Take on that name. Bear the name of Christ, which means you live like Christ and you identify with Christ. You stand in Christ, not ashamed of him. And I think to bear the name of Christ requires specificity. Here's what I mean by that. In our culture, in our day and age, nobody will bat an eye or mock you or look down on you if you say, I'm a spiritual person. It's pretty popular to be spiritual. It's popular to be religious. Nobody will look down on you, I don't think, for the most part. If you say, I go to church. Say, I'm a churchgoer, I'm a spiritual person, I believe in God. You can be general and vague and be approved by all. But it's when you start getting specific that issues come. When you believe and state specifically that Jesus is the only Savior, that only those who believe in him will be saved from the judgment of God, That's specific. It's what Scripture teaches. So what are you going to say to your coworker who asks you? You think I'm going to hell because I'm Jewish? You think I'm going to go to hell if I don't believe in Jesus? Then things get a little more real, a little more uncomfortable, and you're going to have to decide in that moment, how do I not meddle Be tactful, but also state the truth of the gospel and make sure that I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ or his teaching. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except through me.
young person, when you say, I'm remaining celibate because I know what Scripture teaches about sexual activity outside of marriage, that it dishonors God and it's not good for me, so I'm going to remain celibate until marriage. The world will mock you for that. That is part of faithful Christian discipleship. Will you be ashamed to wear the name of Jesus Christ? You may have heard the story of Polycarp. I think I've probably told it in a sermon before, but I love it, so I'll say it again. Polycarp lived in the second century, was a bishop of Smyrna. He was arrested because of his Christian ministry and his refusal to worship Caesar as Lord. He was brought to the arena. The proconsul urged him to offer incense to Caesar. The proconsul told him, take the oath and I shall release you. Curse Christ. And Polycarp responded, 86 years I have served him and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He was tied to the stake and prayed to be received by the Lord as an acceptable sacrifice. Polycarp was not ashamed to wear the name of Jesus Christ and to stand in Christ. Will we be ashamed of Jesus Christ? Or will we honor him even in our suffering? If we're not ashamed of Jesus, God will not be ashamed of us. Luke 9, 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Stand in Christ. And you'll come into glory in the end. Which leads to Peter's thought in verses 17 through 19. How do we suffer as Christians? First, rejoice in the Spirit. Second, stand in Christ. Third, trust in God. Here Peter reminds us that God is the judge over all the earth, and if we are to withstand the judgment of God and endure suffering, we must trust in him, trust in God. Verse 17 through 19, read them with me silently, but I'll read them. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I want to first turn your attention towards verse 18. It's a quote from one of the Proverbs. The ESV translation says, if the righteous is scarcely saved. And you might ask, what does that mean? It's a weird word, weird verse. Other translations have something different. Peter's point here is that we are going to experience God-ordained difficulty in this life. And then verse 18 says, if the righteous is scarcely saved. That word for scarcely can be translated scarcely or barely saved, or it can be translated with difficulty saved. So if you translate it, the righteous is scarcely saved or barely saved, it almost sounds like God has a hard time saving people. Or that only a few are saved. The righteous is scarcely saved, barely saved. But if you translate it, which I think is the better translation, I think is how the NASB reads. 
is saved with difficulty, the meaning is the righteous are saved, but it won't be easy for them. As a righteous person, you may be saved, but you are going to experience difficulty. And I think that's what Peter is saying. That fits with the overall context of what he's getting at. As a believer, as somebody who lives righteously, as one who is in Christ, you will be saved, but you will experience difficulty along the way. Judgment begins with the house of God, Peter says. By house of God, uh, in the Bible it refers to the temple, in the New Testament it refers to the church, because we are the temple. Judgment begins with God's house with the church. Now, is this saying that God is going to condemn his church? That doesn't make sense at all. When Peter uses judgment here, he's not talking about specifically condemnation. Peter is talking about just general purification and judgment. God is going to come as the judge. He's going to purify his world. He is going to judge it all, make it right, and he's going to start with his church, his people. The, the background for this comes from a couple of Old Testament places. You don't have to turn there, but Ezekiel 9, uh, there's a section where God comes to judge Israel. And he sends his messenger to the temple first to clean out the ungodly in the temple, in the sanctuary. He says, start with the sanctuary. And then go out to all of Israel. So Peter's taking that language. But I think what he has in mind is a passage we went over in the summer in the book of Malachi, in Malachi 3. In Malachi 3, God talks about his messenger who will come and who can stand in the day of his coming. And what is that messenger going to do? The messenger is going to judge the nations. Judge evil. But where does that messenger start? With the priests. And the priests he's going to test and refine like fire so that they may be like silver and gold. Malachi 3 says, Who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like Fuller's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they'll bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. See what Malachi's saying? The messenger's going to come, he's going to purify his people, refine them, and then they will bring righteous offerings and praise. In other words, God is going to purify his people in judgment. It'll start with his people. This is what fiery trials do. So we said earlier, they're not by accident. They have a purpose. They're a test. And they also, trials purify. The way fire purifies metal, trials purify us. Here's why and how you can rejoice in the midst of trials. Because God is using those trials to make you like Christ. There is a purpose in them. And if you've been through suffering, you know, you probably ask the question, what's the point of this? At times, suffering feels pointless. I'm suffering. I'm weak. I can't be productive like this. I can't do the things that God wants me to do. I'm supposed to be out there doing things and serving. How can I serve when I'm suffering? And this isn't productive. This doesn't do anything. Why am I suffering like this? This feels pointless. Why me? It seems so arbitrary. Why did our family get hit when the house next to us didn't? Why us? You, know, you ask all these questions of what's the point? What's the purpose? Peter tells you. You never have to wonder. You do not have to be like Job, who had no idea why he was suffering. 
You have a very specific reason given to you in Malachi and in 1 Peter. You are suffering because God loves you and he wants to make you like his son. There's a purpose in your suffering. It is to make you more like God so you can be more effective for him. So we as a church, one of the things we're praying for right now, that we would be evangelistically effective, that we'd be able to plant a church, we would go out and reach our community and our neighbors with the gospel. Guess what? That doesn't happen easily. It's not going to happen with ease and comfort. Very often when, when we try to be faithful as Christians, when a whole church tries to be faithful and feel like the Lord is calling us to something, and, and then all of a sudden it just gets hard and there are difficulties. We might say, I, I think Satan is opposing us. That's probably true. Also, God is refining you. He's bringing trials to purify you so that you might be more holy, so that you might be more effective for him because only holy people are witnesses for God. Peter said it earlier, he's called us out of darkness and his marvelous light. Made us holy, holy people so that we might declare his glory. If we're going to declare the glory of God, if we're going to be faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ, we're going to have to be holy. And in order to be holy, God's going to have to bring us trials. That's the, the heavenly math. Good news is, trust in God and these light momentary afflictions will result in glory with him. You'll experience suffering. If you do not trust in God, it'll be much, much worse. That's what Peter's saying in these verses. Judgment begins at the house of God, but it doesn't end there. If even the righteous are saved with difficulty, what will be the experience of those who are ungodly, who are not of God? It's comfort for the believer. You'll experience suffering, but it'll pass. It's a warning to the non-believer. Whatever pain you're experiencing now, it will be much, much, much more when the Lord comes in judgment. There will be a far greater suffering if you do not trust in God in the midst of trials. So Peter says at the end, kind of to wrap it up, and in fact, one commentator said this verse is a summary of the entire letter. You can see how that fits, but Peter summarizes his message in verse 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will, I think meaning according to the way God has planned for it, God's will that you're going to suffer. So if let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. To entrust something is to hand it over. We entrust our money to the bank. We give it over and entrust it. Peter's call to you. And trust your soul, your whole self. Give it over to God who is faithful. You will suffer, that's the will of God. In suffering, entrust your soul because he's a faithful creator who will save. So how do we suffer as Christians? We have our answer. Don't be surprised at the trials, but rejoice in the spirit. 
Don't suffer as a sinner or an evildoer. Don't be ashamed of Christ, but stand in Jesus Christ. Don't abandon God in the suffering. Don't neglect him, but trust in God in the midst of all pain. And you will not suffer later. We'll rejoice with him forever. All this possible because Jesus Christ entrusted himself to the Father, committed his spirit to the Father, and saved us by his work on the cross that we might live with him forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we do trust you this morning. Uh, we admit some of us might be having wonderful days, and that's good. We celebrate those. We rejoice in the good times, Lord. Uh, and there are a lot of days that are uh, somewhere in between. Uh, a lot of days that kind of seem to just drift along. And then that's the normal Christian life. But Lord, then there are days that are different. There are seasons that are different, months or years that are different, that are hard and excruciating, and all of us are going to experience them if we haven't already. And in those times, Lord, may your word prepare us that we might be tested and found faithful, that you might try us and purify us and prepare us, Lord, to serve you well in this life, to worship you, and then also to live forever in glory. For this, Lord, we need your spirit, and we thank you for your son. May we rejoice in all things, for you are worthy and you are good to us as a faithful creator. Amen.